Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying our best not to be taken over to trial by combat. It's episode 202 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I'm the only one here, so I mean, I'm not hearing any challengers or anything, but you will hear my spoiler-filled review of the Black Panther movie coming up. I know that you've been waiting for it. Going to give you my thoughts on it. Nope, not going to tease anything. I mean, if you follow on Twitter, you might know what I think, but I'll give you my full spoiler-filled review Coming up also, I mean, Image Expo happens, so I'll be talking about some of the books from there and so much more going on. But, you know, speaking of books, let's review some. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Gene Ha, comic book artist and writer of May. And this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the long box, the tablet, or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and a return of Joss Whedon. To comics, that's right. It's Giles number one from Dark Horse Comics, of course, written by Joss Whedon and Erica Alexander. John Lamb on the art, Dan Jackson on the colors, and Richard Starkings in Comicraft's Jimmy Bentecourt on the letters. Now, this does feel very, very much like a 90s comic. It just had such a 90s vibe to it. And in case you don't know the premise, basically Giles, if you're a Buffy fan, you know who that is, is brought back from the dead but as a teenager who is going to a very interesting school, to say the least. Again, I try to do these spoiler-free, so I'm not going to drop a whole lot of information information on you, but I will tell you this much. Buffy and the gang are referenced, some of them anyway, in this book, but aren't in the story. Now, I will tell you that it is explained why they're not in the story, where they are, but they're still kind of a part of it because Giles is kind of on a mission in the school that he's in. And while he's on that mission, he does run into a familiar face, but that's not the interesting relationship in the book. If you know what Giles does, what would be something that would be a little bit of a conflict for him? Should he meet someone that he likes? I will tell you that much again, no spoilers here. I mean, maybe you've already read the book, so you know exactly who I'm talking about, but I will say this. It is a very interesting and kind of quirky relationship that he has with this person. And it's almost like they suit each other so well that it's going to be interesting to see if this person proves to be more of a distraction or a tremendous help to Giles as the book goes on. Because clearly there's something that's not quite right. And maybe this is a spoiler. I'll go ahead and throw this out. This is There's demon involved. At least one at this school and kind of wreaking havoc. And it's funny because you, you get a certain vibe about the school and you wonder how many people could actually be involved in this whole thing. And that was one of the beauty parts of this book is you don't really get a whole lot of reveal, even as a Buffy fan, maybe, I mean, cause I wasn't a huge Buffy fan. So maybe Buffy fans were a little bit ahead of where I am in this book, but I will say that it, it's almost like a, everyone's a suspect type of situation 
But for some reason, for me, I mean, even if you're not a huge Buffy fan, this book just felt really fun. And if you actually looked at the little notations down on the foot of each page, almost every page, there's a mixtape. So it tells you what songs follow along. And if you know the songs, while you at, when you get done reading the page, it's almost like you get that hit, like if you're watching a show, and right at the end of the scene, they hit a song and they go into the next scene. That's kind of how I felt. Reading this book, there were a couple of songs that I went, ah, okay, yeah, and it just kind of popped into my head. And I think that's one of the reasons that made it fun. And it's just so good to have Joss Whedon back in the comics game. But, I mean, aside from that, I mean, the art by John Lamb and the colors by Dan Jackson in this book are pretty darn awesome to go right along with it. And I think that that's one of the, thing, one of the reasons that made this such a fun and easy read because... You're really capturing the essence of the characters that we do know. And then it's, again, the the relationship between Giles and the person that he meets that's either going to help him or not. It's just the subtle little facial expressions when they're looking at each other and stuff like that that just made this so much fun. So this is a pull for me. And I think Buffy fan or not, you're really, really going to enjoy Giles. And Dark Horse is really going to be pumping these books out. So if you're going to add this to your pull box, make sure you're doing it now. Somebody you're very familiar with on the show is Liam Sharp, and he has his own comic from DC right now, The Brave and the Bold, Batman and Wonder Woman number one, which, of course, is written and has the art done by Liam Sharp. Romulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors, and AWL's Tony Piteri does the letters. Now, before I even get into what this book is about, can I just say that Liam Sharp, working with Wonder Woman, Diana Prince again, it's like spending time with a really good friend that you know you don't get to see very often, but you're so glad when you do. I mean, there's just something so right about him writing Diana and, of course, the art as well. He was always a great artist on the Wonder Woman books with Greg Rucka, but the way he writes Diana as well and the emphasis that's really put on the relationship between Steve Trevor and Diana is amazing. And I keep saying Diana because I feel like when I'm talking about Wonder Woman in regards to Liam Sharp, I refer to her as Diana because I feel like not only in his art, but in the writing in this book as well, he brings out Diana more than I, I, I can't tell you how many writers have been able to do that for me, other than Greg Rocco, who he worked on the series with. And I don't know how he brings out Diana so well. And, and just makes her this caring soul, which she always has, but I'm not saying that this is any new revelation, but it's just the way it's presented in this story and in past stories that Liam's been a part of that's just so wonderful, and it, it just brings a smile to my face, and it makes me want to absorb as much of this story as I possibly could, and the story itself centers around the murder of a god, and that's in the solicits, and it's on the website and everything, so that is not a spoiler, and I won't even tell you which one it is. And Diane actually gets to play detective in this, which I think is really neat, because she's kind of being brought, brought in as not only a peacemaker for these worlds, but at the same time to try and find out a whodunit. And that's kind of sprung upon her, and you immediately see her jump into detective mode, which is very, very interesting. Now, on the side of that, of course, you've got Batman as well, who's investigating a very interesting disturbance in an Irish section of Gotham. Everybody's just kind of zoned out is the best way that I could think to describe it. And, of course, you know that eventually, because this is the brave and the bold, Batman and Wonder Woman, these worlds are going to collide 
at some point, and maybe sooner rather than later, by the way, based on the way that this book ends. But I will also say that this mythical world that Liam's bringing uh, Diana into, when he brings it to life, it's, it's quite interesting, and it feels like some of the characters are kind of playing both sides on this. I'm not exactly sure who's in it for what right now, and I think it's a little early in the story to even tell that anyway. And with, with what happened in this issue, I think there's a lot of the mythical characters that are also acting on emotion as well. So it's it's once the dust settles, I think we'll find a way to figure out where everybody is. But such amazing detail in this world. And you almost feel like you're a part of it. It doesn't even feel like this world is even partially explored yet either. I know we're only one issue in, but I feel like there's just this vast exploration that's going to be done in the upcoming issues and things are very much left open-ended at the conclusion of issue one as well and how is batman going to be brought into all of this that is the big question for me leading into this book and you know certainly diana you figure could handle the investigation on her own but why not have the world's greatest detective even if it's to stumble in and there's another character in this book that almost seems like an also ran character like yeah okay this person's just part of the story for for a little bit of flair, right? And, and it's an older character. That's as much as I'll give you. But it's what that older character says that makes you wonder if that's what's going to connect these two worlds because he does make a couple of references. And it's nobody that we know per se, at, le- at least not at this stage. It certainly could end up being that way. But the mystery, I think, is going to be connected by that character who almost seems like he wouldn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but ex- but in reality might matter a whole, whole lot. So, I mean, I just can't say enough. I, I mean, maybe I'm biased because I'm a, just such a huge fan of Liam Sharp, but I think that it's justified because Liam does such a fantastic job, especially with the relationship between Steve and Diana. That That, that just made this book for me. And I know that that's going to be a factor going forward, especially a conversation that Steve and Diana were having in a private moment was just so great. And I know that that's going to be a part of the story at some point. Another pull for me, go get this book, Brave and the Bold, Wonder Woman and Batman, while you're going ahead and getting Giles number one from Dark Horse Comics as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, you've waited for it. It's finally here. My spoiler-filled review of Black Panther is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Noble and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. The wait is finally over. We're going to be traveling to Wakanda and our spoiler-filled review of the Black Panther movie. I cannot stress this enough. There will be a lot of spoilers from here on out in this review. And again, I'm going to do a quick summary of what the plot is here. And then I'm not going to bog you down with every little scene from the movie. I'm just going to tell you what I thought. So basically, we're picking up where Captain America Civil War left off in a way. Now, you don't have to see Captain America Civil War to know what's going on in Black Panther. They kind of re-go over what role T'Challa had and T'Chaka. And, and they go over that in the beginning of this movie. So don't worry about that at all. And basically, this is the coronation for King T'Challa now. And of course, things don't go the way they should, and you have an outsider, a killmonger that's trying to take over the throne and actually does at one point. And then it's the struggle for T'Challa to get his rightful throne back and kind of avenge something that his father did. But I'll get more to that a little bit later on in the review. But that's basically where we're at here. Now, visually, this movie 
is stunning. There's a great scene in this movie where Sterling K. Brown's character, Prince Njobu, talks to his son, Killmonger, about how beautiful Wakanda really is. And it's the most beautiful sunset he's ever seen and, and certain things like that. I'm paraphrasing here. And when you see Wakanda, either from afar or close up, it really is beautiful, not just because of the technological aspects, but just visually stunning. This entire movie has the visuals down packed. There's a couple of points of CGI where it's like, okay, that's clearly CGI. But you know what? For anybody who's complaining about CGI at this point in 2018, and I've said this on the show before, I mean, we just got to deal with it. I mean, this is what it's going to be. This is technology that we have. It's going to be used. It's it's a way to make things in certain points maybe a little bit easier. And I don't really have a problem with using CG unless it's 100% completely sloppy. So I, I'm willing to overlook some of the CG stuff here in Black Panther. But my other main thing that I wanted to talk about is I owe Michael B. Jordan a huge Huge apology because when I told when I talked about this trailer before when the very first trailer came out, I my one of my main concerns was I don't know if I buy Michael B. Jordan as a main villain here. And it's and you know, Ulysses Claw certainly plays his role as a villain as well, but your main villain is clearly Killmonger, which is Michael B. Jordan. I wasn't sure how he'd be able to pull it off. And man, I could not have been more wrong. And I'll tell you why. Because for the first time, I'm not going to say ever because I think that's a little heavy-handed, but the first time in a long time at least, Marvel has given us in the MCU not only a legitimate villain, a legitimate threat, but a villain with a dual purpose whose perspective you can actually see and understand which is not something that Marvel movies have done well, despite all the praise, both critical and by fans. Marvel has not done well with its big bads, but Killmonger is that purpose. Not only do you have the whole aspect of what happened with his father, Prince Njobu, and that, how that whole thing went down with T'Chaka killing him and just basically leaving him as a child behind, but you also have the fact that he's joined the military and he's seen suffering from all over the world. Now, remember, Wakanda lives in secret and they don't share their advanced technology with the rest of the world. And that is Killmonger's second problem. So now you have not only the purpose of the revenge aspect for what happened to his father, but the fact that as a military man, he's seen suffering all over the world and doesn't understand why Wakanda just kind of sits there and does nothing. Now, whether you agree with his viewpoint or not, and you probably don't. You have to admit that his purpose and why he is doing what he's doing is not only clearly defined, but actually is a legitimate motivation for wanting to do what he does. And then you're, you're also talking about when T'Challa fails to capture Ulysses Claw, and then you have Wakabi, who kind of turns on him in his hour of need when Killmonger does show up and then you have that whole fight scene at the end. I mean, and it boggles my mind that somebody could turn like Wakabi, who was the one I kind of hated the most in the movie, because it's almost like, really? So he's been king for five seconds, and he does one thing wrong, and you completely turn on him the first chance you get. I thought that was BS. Maybe I'm wrong there. I was a little mad at Wakabi. Not the actor playing him, but the character himself. I'm like, really? That's what's going to happen? That's how it's going to go down? Okay. So I, I didn't really understand 
that and I was a little mad about that. But it's, I mean, Killmonger, such an amazing, amazing villain, and you know had all the chops. I mean, the the fight scenes were amazing, and you saw just he he portrayed the role of a villain in a way of a reckless king, which I thought was really really cool. And then you have your main hero, T'Challa. Man, is this a guy you want to root for. I mean, Chadwick Boseman does such a great job. We saw that in Captain America's Civil War. But, I mean, taking it to a next level of a guy that just has so much hope. And he just never gives up hope in anyone and doesn't want anyone to suffer. And wants to not only be better than his father was as king but kind of right some wrongs there. Like, he doesn't understand that the great emotional scenes between T'Challa and T'Chaka, not only when he first becomes king, but when he finds out what has happened to Killmonger and he's questioning his father in the spirit world, saying, why would you do this? Why did you do what you did? Some of my favorite scenes in this movie were those emotionally intense scenes between the two of them. And then you look at the rest of the family, and Shuri, I'm sorry, Latitia... Right. Steals this movie. She was absolutely fantastic. She was funny. She was amazing. And her she was the smartest person in the room. And she knew all this technology. And she's only 16. How impressive is she? And her motivation and just positivity and her want to just help out was so infectious. That to me, she just stole the show. And every scene that she was in, I found myself just gravitating towards her because she was so amazing. And maybe it was her positive energy. I don't know. But she just did such a good job. And not to say anybody else did any less of a job. Not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is is that she is someone that I could see honestly getting her own movie and me actually wanting to go see it because of her. And I'm and that maybe that that's heavy-handed. I don't care. That is how much I loved this character. Or at least make her some sort of a lead somewhere down the line. I know she plays based on the comics, I know she plays a bigger role. So don't don't get me wrong there. It's not like I'm completely ignorant about this, but I'm actually now looking to that point. I want to see more between her and her brother, almost like in a team aspect. I think that if we get more of that in in another Black Panther movie down the line, or maybe even a little bit in Infinity War, although I'm not sure how much you can do it there, I would love to see that because I think that this is a combination that just worked so well, the two of them. And then you bring in Okoye, who is the general, who you do not, do not, do not, do not want to mess with. I mean, you don't want to mess with the Dora Milaje anyway, but you definitely don't want to mess with Okoye. And we see that at the end of the movie, and I'm kind of skipping around here because, again, I'm not going through every scene, but when you see Okoye and Wakabi, who, that's, that's, that's her man right there, and she says, for Wakanda, yes, I would strike you down right here, and what does he do? He drops that weapon because you do not mess with that woman at all. That is a strong woman right there. So I don't know what to be more excited about how strong of a character T'Challa was, or how strong the women were in this movie, because I haven't even gotten to Nakia yet, who is, you know, you would think, okay, she's gonna, she's the love interest here, she's part of Wakanda, but she's kind of off on her own missions, but no, she's not your typical love interest. Sure, there is a love story here, but it is very much secondary to the fact that Nakia is her own woman, 
She has her own path. She wants to follow that, see that through, and she wants to be able to take care of people that are suffering any way that she can. And she's actually the one that says, hey, we should share and share alike. We should be helping these people. So she actually influences T'Challa, I think, as we go on to want to do that, which is eventually what they do towards the end of the movie. I love that. So, and, and again, another fierce fighter. And she was right there when everything went down. She was part of the main reason that the that the, the T'Challa's family got out after he was tossed over the side there by by uh, Killmonger arrow style. You remember when Stephen Amell gets stabbed by uh, gets stabbed by Rachel Ghoul and he falls off the mountain. I couldn't help but think about that when Killmonger throws T'Challa over the side, and then of course he gets picked up at some point down the line, dragged off to safety, kind of thing. So I couldn't help but think of that. Not that it's the same at all, but for some reason that popped into my head when I saw that. But here's another character that I want to talk about that's very much known in the comics, and that's M'Baku. He was the first one to challenge T'Challa for the throne. Of course, failed, but there was a respect level there. And how easy would it have been when they went to M'Baku and they said, here, Here's the strength of the Black Panther. You're the only one that can save us from Killmonger and save Wakanda. Take this. Let's get your army. Let's go in there and finish this thing. He knows he has a near-death T'Challa in his village. He knows that he could easily take this, move on, and become the new ruler of Wakanda if he wants to. But instead, he does the honest thing, shows them that T'Challa is still alive, T'Challa gets the power of the Black Panther back, and then the rest is history. So, I mean, this is kind of going overlooked, I think, in a lot of reviews of this movie. And a lot that's not really being talked about is M'Baku. And again, he saves the day in the battle as well, when it looks like the Dura Malashe are getting overwhelmed, and the Black Panther's getting overwhelmed. Here comes M'Baku and his army to kind of even the score a little bit. So I think that M'Baku's role in this movie is really kind of going overlooked as another strong character who could have easily taken the selfish route, but there was a respect there. And that's one thing that is very heavy in this movie as well, and it's tradition and it's respect. And that is one thing that I think is so important here. You do have the technological side, and that's great. Wakanda has that, and they're thriving as an economy because of it. But they still stick to the traditions like the trial by combat. They still stick to that no matter what, even though you clearly Killmonger is a villain. And clearly he's not going to do the right thing for Wakanda. But that is their tradition. I mean, he even kills Zuri. And it doesn't matter because that is their tradition. That is how they do things. That's how they determine who their ruler is in that moment. And he had the rightful claim to the throne being the son of Prince Njobu. So there you go. So you have the very much balance of the hyper technology before its time and the tradition, which I think was a great part of this. And then you throw in Everett K. Ross, the CIA agent played by Martin Freeman, who again could have easily ratted out Wakanda several times. And he actually says that to T'Challa, look, I could have just ratted you out to my people a long time ago, and Wakanda would have been discovered way before this. But he decided not to. 
And then that kind of divisive relationship turns into more of a relationship of respect because, of course, they save his life. And then he, in turn, does whatever he can to save Wakanda and didn't need to keep his mouth shut after all because T'Challa, again, decides to go in one of the end credit scenes and say, here's who we are, here's Wakanda, here's what we're going to do, we're going to share our resources sort of thing. So that's one end credit scene, which was very inspiring, but we'll get to the second one here in just a few but it's, there's just so many characters here that played their roles so perfectly. And Ryan Coogler doing an amazing job with the script and the pacing. I mean, yeah, things got a little bit slow in the middle. Not going to lie. They actually did get a little bit slow at one point, And it was a tad bit predictable in points as well. You've got to admit that. But you overlooked that because of how inspiring the story was and how strong of the, the main characters in this movie really were that even if you knew what was coming, they were playing their roles so well that it didn't matter because you were still engrossed in what the story was going to be. It's like watching any adaptation of something where you know what's coming, but it doesn't matter if the performance is fantastic. Now, I'm not saying I knew everything that was coming, but it wasn't like a huge mystery or anything, the things that were going to happen. Like when Killmonger throws T'Challa off the side and you see him go crashing down. And it's a big emotional scene, but at the same time, you're like, you know he's not dead. You know he's not going to die. So, I mean, it's a little bit of an empty gesture there as a, as a moviegoer for me to sit there and say, oh, well, what's going to happen now? You know he's coming back at some point. But it doesn't matter because look at everything that happened around that it propped up Nakia it gave that it showed that side of Okoye where it's like I know Killmonger is terrible but I am here to fight for Wakanda I can't go with you and that was an amazing scene and Shuri's emotion being brought out and her losing that positivity that made her so likable as a character in the beginning of this movie and again propping her up to a level where she ends up actually having to fight Killmonger with Nakia towards the end of the movie and show a different side of herself once again. So I love that even though in the predictable moments of this movie, you still had stuff that kept you glued to this story. And I love the end where, where T'Challa goes back to where Njobu was killed and Killmonger was abandoned. And he says, look, we're going to do an outreach center and you're going to run this with Nakia and we're going to start doing what should have been done in the first place and start revitalizing things. I loved that. I love that even when Killmonger has tried to kill T'Challa throughout this entire movie, and at the end, when Killmonger's giving his last speech, talking about how his dad was always going to take him to Wakanda because he told him how beautiful it was, and T'Challa brings him up so he can see that sunset. To me, that was any, and he's like, we might still be able to heal you, and you're going, What? Really? But then at the same time, it's like, that's just who T'Challa is. He thinks everyone can be saved. And isn't there something amazingly redeeming in that? No matter, the guy just tried to kill him two minutes ago. And now he wants to try to save him. That is everything a hero should be, is it not? I mean, honestly, isn't that something that we want and need right now? Is someone like T'Challa? I think it is. So I think that that's a great message of several that were being sent in this movie. Now, before I move on here, I want to talk about a couple of the criticisms that I've seen online. First criticism is, well, how did Killmonger find Wakanda if he killed Ulysses Claw? I saw that as a criticism. First of all, 
you know he doesn't get it from Claw. That's pretty obvious because he kills him, right? But remember that journal that he finds of his dad's? There's there's no way of knowing that there weren't some sort of here's where Wakanda is message in that journal. So that's an easy way that he could have found Wakanda. I'm actually thinking that that's going to be a deleted scene once the Blu-ray comes out is we'll find out exactly how he found out where Wakanda was. So I don't see that as a plot hole. I see that as a very easy thing that he could have figured out based on who he is. I think that that was enough. And the other criticism, which I thought was really unfair, and I have to sound off about this as well, the technology that they had was so unrealistic and they didn't explain any of it. Okay, maybe they didn't. But here's the deal, guys. I mean, this is still a comic book movie, okay? As much as it's 2018 and we want everything to be grounded and realistic and steeped in realism and all of these other things, right? That's just kind of what we expect, especially with such an authentic presentation that Black Panther gives us. Guys, it's still a comic book movie. Don't overthink every little thing. Sometimes you just have to let things be what they are. Should you be able to drink the juice of some flower and suddenly have super strength and become the Black Panther? Probably not. But it's a comic book movie, and can't we just enjoy something without picking it apart and having everything have to be steeped in realism? Just take it for what it is. And isn't that what science fiction is? It, this is still a science fiction movie, too. It's called science fiction. It's not called science steeped in facts, okay? Now, there might be some facts involved, and I know that there are science consultants on movies. We'll be talking about Annihilation. Here next, probably next week, if not the week after, we'll be talking about Annihilation. And I know that they had a science consultant for that movie. Maybe that'll be a little bit different. But in this case, come on, guys. I mean, just let some things go and let's enjoy the entirety of what we had. So given that, I am going to be giving my rating here. Now, again, so many strong characters to choose from. It's hard to pick a favorite. It really is because I loved so many of them. A villain with a distinct purpose, finally, in a Marvel movie. A a couple of other things that I wished that... that Sometimes I wish these movies weren't connected and this was a standalone movie because I felt like it didn't need to call back to any of the other movies and it did a couple of times. Other than that second end credit scene... When Bucky comes out and Shuri's there and she's been kind of clearly nursing him back to health and he is Bucky now. He's clean. He's no longer the Winter Soldier. So we get that. At least we know that now going forward into Infinity War. That's a connection that was necessary. Some of the other stuff, I wish that it didn't need to happen. But this movie was so beautifully done. It sends such a great message several of them as a matter of fact, especially if you want if you really want to look and see through It gave a clear-cut storyline, and it gave us a hero that defines the word hero. Was this a perfect movie? Absolutely not. And I think if you see past everything that this movie might mean, and for me as a white man, it's hard for me to see this on a level that others see this as, and I completely understand that. But if we're being honest... This was not a perfect movie, but it was close. It's one of the best Marvel movies. I cannot say it is the best because I just, for for one, I think Winter Soldier 
was the perfect Marvel movie. Captain America Winter Soldier was the perfect Marvel movie, and I can't see much of anything going above that. And after that, it's debatable. Black Panther is in the conversation for me after Winter Soldier. I'm sorry, that's just how I feel. But this movie was so darn close to perfect, and everything was presented and portrayed so well. The raw emotion, the people of Wakanda, the respect that was given to tradition in that movie, and the fact that this movie was unapologetically what it was and shows that this is a kind of movie that can be hugely successful if done properly. So I am going to give this nine remotely driving vehicles out of ten because, man, would I love to sit in a chair and drive a vehicle without having to worry about smashing it into a million pieces. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Black Panther. Up next, there's some nerd news, and we will get to it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This writer, Christopher Sabella, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like the bat cycle might be stuck in the garage. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is because, according to The Hollywood Reporter, Joss Whedon no longer going to be directing the Batgirl movie. One of the quotes from Joss actually said that he took him this long to realize that he just didn't have a story. And first of all, before I go any further on this, bravo for jo- to Joss for walking away if that's the case. I mean, he could have easily kept this job, made the best movie that he could, wrote the best movie that he could, and just went with that. But instead of doing that, he did the adult thing. He walked away, and he's going to let somebody else helmet that might have a better story. Because why put a movie out just to put it out. And, you know, one of the criticisms of DC movies before this have been, you know, the lack of a cohesive story and something that actually mattered outside of Wonder Woman and arguably Justice League. I'll let you argue with that because I'm not I'm not going down that road again. But this is what you should do, and this is how things should be. And this also gives the new regime that's been taking over DC films a chance to pick their person that they think is the best fit for this job because you remember we just had that whole overhaul so maybe they just want to pick their person and Joss Whedon realizes that and it's not like Joss is going to not do anything with DC films now for all we know he's going to be tapped to to helm the next Justice League movie because he took care of most of the last one that could be the trend that's going and maybe they found a different project for him but here's the thing that is alarming about this If you read the rumor mill, and maybe this is exactly the reason not to read the rumor mill, Batgirl and The Flash were actually supposed to be next up after the Wonder Woman sequel and, of course, after Shazam. And it looks like that's not going to be happening now. Well, and then you've got Chris McKay, who's going to be directing the Dungeons & Dragons movie, and that might be pushing back the Nightwing movie. Not that that's even part of this discussion, but, I mean... It seems like more and more delays than that is concerning, but at the same time, take your time to get it right. It's the same. I've said this about video games a thousand times. Take your time. Get it right. Do what needs to be done. I'll gladly wait another year, even two, to make sure that this is done properly and it's a good, honest adaptation of the character to the screen. At the same time, I would not be surprised at all if this ends up being a Birds of Prey movie now. Not be surprised in the slightest. You know, Gotham City Sirens, that seems to be either on the shelf or not happening. But 
why not do a Birds of Prey movie? If you were going to do a Sirens movie, why not do a Birds of Prey movie? Does Batgirl deserve her own movie? Absolutely. Can she carry her own movie? Absolutely. But would you be upset about getting a Birds of Prey movie? I certainly wouldn't. So I would take that as well. If that's the direction that they want to go, I'm completely cool with that. So whether we get Batgirl by herself or with the Black Canary and Huntress, I'm willing to wait as long as it takes to get this thing right. Now a little bit of trailer talk, and I'll do this really quickly. The Lost in Space reboot trailer came out, and it was basically talking about finding a new world to replace the Earth and restart civilization. You get the Will Robinson teaser, and it's definitely much more intense sounding robot that says danger will robinson you know it's really deep and dark kind of that was that was horrible but you get the impression right i mean it has been 50 years since the last lost in space series not even going to talk about that other movie been 50 years so you're definitely going to update it it's definitely going to be more modern it certainly has that look but it also had a little bit of a nostalgic feel to it i'm not going to go in depth and analyze every little thing in the trailer there was actually a nice little, um, there was a nice, you know, weaving in of, of certain personal things, you know, throughout society, like actual news footage kind of thing. So that was interesting. Maybe giving reasons why we need to find another Earth, I guess. I don't know. But, I mean, does this trailer make me have strong feelings one way or the other about this? No, but it is coming out in April. So we're going to find out a lot quicker than we thought. Whether or not the Lost in Space reboot is going to work out. But, I mean, I'm still down for this. I still think that this is something that could actually work if done properly. And it could also be a gigantic disaster and something that we didn't need. But it just it just feels like this one might actually work out. As long as it's not too many episodes, too. That's the other thing. Really quickly, first look at Brainiac from the latest Krypton trailer. I, I don't want to talk about every Krypton trailer. But the fact that we're getting a first look at Brainiac, and I think it's an excellent it's dark, it's quite comics accurate, and it just seems like it has that legit faux vibe, doesn't it? And I mean, Brainiac is legit just by name alone, but then you throw him out there, you give him this look, and it's that ever-present being kind of feeling, you know? It has that big shot kind of feeling. It seems like every time I see something new from Krypton, I get more and more psyched about it, because it seems more and more legit. So I'm really, really excited to actually see Brainiac in action. As much as Brainiac actually is in action, you know what I mean? But I can't wait to see the portrayal itself once it really starts to get going. I think it's going to be really, really great. And it makes me so psyched for Krypton in a few weeks. Now I'm going to move on to Image Expo, which announced 20 new books at the keynote address. No, I am not going to sit here and go through all 20. So I'm just going to pick out a few that really, really caught my eye. This doesn't mean that I didn't like some of the other books. But if I have to pick a few, these are the ones I'm going to pick. And the first one that caught my eye was a book called Crowded, which is going to be coming in the summer of 2018 by Christopher Sabella, Ted Brandt, Rose Stein, and Triona Farrell. Now, basically, there's a platform called Reaper that's going to allow allow anyone to crowdfund assassination attempts and this is directly from the, the, the description that they gave at Image Expo, by the way. The parody ignites when protagonist Charlie Ellison is forced to fend off a wave of hitmen with the help of a low-rate bodyguard. So, I mean, especially with the stuff that Christopher Sabella has been doing lately, this just seems like such a cool concept and one that is right up his alley. So I really cannot wait 
especially what he's done with the Hitman comics with Dynamite recently, really taking those up a notch. I think this is a good idea, and I'm glad it's going to be done at Image because I think it's something that could really even up Sabella even another level. I, th- I feel like every time he puts a book out, more and more people know his name and should know his name because he's putting out some excellent stuff. Speaking of excellent, the always excellent Rick Remender going to be teaming up with Bengal for Death or Glory. And it basically, it, it's, it's a story that is a, and again, this is right from the description, a high-speed convoy crime thriller rocketing across the American West that examines our dwindling freedoms and the price paid by those who fight for an untethered life on the open road. And basically we meet Glory, who's raised free in a convoy off the grid amid the last men and women truckers fighting automation to continue living the American mythology of the open road. This is actually a first world problem. I mean, this is something that could actually happen and it's being addressed by somebody that can really do, really bring something like this to light and Rick Remender. I mean, taking real world stuff and putting him in comics, I think that as far as issues go, Remender does that very, very well. And we're going to get this in May of 2018, so we're not even going to have to wait that long. And I just feel like this is something maybe a little bit different for Rick Remender, but also something that I think could be really, really cool and, and addresses an actual issue. And that is something that Image Comics does very well, is address real-world problems. So that is going to be a really neat one to check out in May. Back to the summer now with Leviathan, and John Lehman's going to be writing this one with Nick Patera. Patera doing the art, and Mike Garland involved as well. And yeah, basically we've got this thing going on here where a group of millennials try to do a black magic ritual for kicks and then end up summoning a demon, a giant monster that's kind of determined to kill them all. To me, this just sounds like a fun book that's probably going to poke fun at millennials, so I'm all about that. I think that that'll be hilarious. And I I don't know if it's going to be meant to be serious or a little bit off-the-wall goofy, Either way, I think that it's going to be a really, really fun thing to do, and I'm glad that John Lehman is involved in another book at Image. You know, now that Chew has ended, give him a chance to sink his teeth into something new. Yeah, I went there, and I'm, I'm okay with it. And then you have Todd McFarlane, who actually announced five new Spawn projects, or five new project of his, uh, projects of his own, anyway. But here's one that really stood out to me. We're going to be getting Medieval Spawn and Witchblade crossover miniseries this May. Basically reteaming them up, a couple of the most popular characters in Image. It's going to be written by Brian Hullergruen and art by Brian Halberlin. And so the couple Brian's going to be taking that. It's going to be a $2.99 comic too, by the way. It's going to be have an augmented reality cover. And it's going to bring these two together. We don't get a whole lot of a whole lot more other than that. But, I mean, putting Spawn and Witchblade together just makes so much sense anyway. And this is something that fans have been waiting for for, what, 20 years now to get these characters back together? So it seems like there's going to be a lot of Spawn hype this year and even in, into the next year, especially with the Spawn movie coming. This, this couldn't, it couldn't be a better time to go all in on Spawn, I don't think. Finally, going to stick with comics and actually a little bit of bad news as we get more books coming in from Image, less books Anyway, from DC, which I'm sure they'll be replaced, but follow me on this, because a lot of DC Rebirth titles have been canceled. Of course, this one from Newsarama, Justice League of America, going to be canceled in April. At least it's going to stop in April. If things weren't bad enough for Steve Orlando, Supergirl going to end in April as well. As of me recording this, there is no word on Teen Titans 
or Titans, but those are rumored to be canceled by DC. Then we've got Super Sons that's been canceled. This one bums me out. Batgirl and the Birds of Prey going to be canceled in May. So here's some good news, though. Benjamin Percy, yes, Green Arrow's Benjamin Percy, going to be taking over Nightwing in May, starting with issue 44. And there's going to be a new villain and all this stuff, and Percy is going to be so perfect for Nightwing, it's not even going to be funny. I mean, you go look, the, the creative teams that Nightwing has had since Rebirth has been just amazing, and this is a cherry on top for me. I cannot wait to see what Benjamin Percy is going to do with the character. Now, you look at all these cancellations, and some of them definitely bum me out. Actually, a great majority of them, because I'm, I'm reading a lot of them. I guess I kind of get it, though. And you don't want, if, if it feels stale or it's not selling, you've got to really do something about it, right? And if you're going to do a wave of cancellations, you might as well do it with this. And I'm sure that some of these characters are going to be absorbed in the No Justice, or at least post-No Justice arc that's coming from Scott Snyder. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. And then you've got Bendis' Superman that's going to be coming up. So it wouldn't surprise me to see these characters used a little bit more there. Now, I will say that Peter J. Tomasi has said that he is not done with Damien and John. So it uh, looks like Tomasi might have something cooked up for those two past Super Sons. Because that was, that, other than Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, that one was the one that bumped me out the most because I really, really enjoyed Super Sons and that dynamic. And, of course, you remember when when I talked to Julian Shauna Benson at DC and DC 2018, you've, you've heard on the show already, they're teasing working on another book for DC anyway. So it's not like we're losing the wonderful Julian Shauna Benson altogether. They will still be around, but it will be a different character. now. And DC's done a pretty good job of shaking things up in Rebirth in a necessary way, you know, getting things, you know, getting new teams on, but not doing it too quickly. They certainly kept a lot of the creative teams on for a long while. And some of them are still working like Tom King, still working on Batman, obviously Joshua Williamson, still working on flash stuff like that. So, but then you mix things up a little bit, right? So you've got some creative teams ending and those talents that are still really, really good are just moving on to different books. And don't forget, you've got DC's new age of heroes as well. And, Almost every book I've read so far from that has been a huge winner. So it's not like we're really losing anything other than you're not going to see solo titles really from specific characters that you love. Maybe this is going to be a thing where instead of a regular series, it moves to a mini series. Not a ton of information from DC on this, but I'm sure after May solicitations, which have already come out, maybe we see something in June or a little bit further on beyond, beyond that, or we find something out at San Diego Comic-Con this coming year then we will know what's really going on. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week, but up next, going to rock out with Punk's Not Dead writer David Barnett. That is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Peter Milligan. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes on the show, you know, we just have to rock out. And this week is one of those weeks because of Black Crown and Punk's Not Dead number one. When I read it, I knew I had to talk to this guy. It's David Barnett, the writer. How you doing, man? Hi, great. Thank you very much. Cheers. Now, David, when it comes to rock, I mean, you certainly didn't have a shortage of characters to, to choose from throughout history for this story. So what made Sid Vicious kind of the perfect choice? Well, I think uh, Sid occupies a uh, um, qu- quite a unique place in rock history, really, because, uh, well, basically, you couldn't play his instrument and <laughs> didn't do much, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which is a fairly unique place to uh, to 
build a, a lasting rock career on. But he's, he's kind, it's his kind of image and what he represents, really. And um, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's got a very visual, immediately identifiable look about him. And he's, uh, he's also, there's kind of so much more than music around the Sex Pistols, who were at the core of the punk scene, it was. I mean, I mean, really, if we're talking about it, they, they were, in essence, a manufactured boy band of the time. Oh yeah, put to, put together by Malcolm McLaren, and um, you know they, they didn't come together organically or naturally. And it's I I, I find the whole sort of thing fascinating, and, and kind of what they represent, and it was kind of like anarchy and anti-establishment and anti-authoritarian, but they were still kind of put together and manufactured and someone was pulling the strings and making a lot of money out of them. Um, and, you know, the, the, Sid especially wasn't a particularly nice character, really, in, in real life. We're doing something a bit different with the character Sid in Punk's Not Dead, as uh, as people will see if they uh, when they pick up the first issue, really. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I mean, there are some younger readers for, for comics, obviously, mm. now. So how does it kind of feel that you could be introducing Sid to a younger reader, maybe for the first time? Well, we're kind of doing that via the uh, the main character, really, Fergie, Fergie Ferguson, who doesn't really have much of an idea who Sid is when, uh, when he first meets him in ghost form. Um, and that's kind of part of what we're doing. We're kind of like un- unraveling his character through Fergie's eyes and Fergie will eventually sort of come to find out a lot about Sid um, and m- may not like a lot of what he sees, but um, it's, it, it, we're, we're trying to sort of straddle that, that border of um, looking back at what's gone before, but also through Fergie looking forward into the future. And there's almost a generational thing going on, which is quite weird really because Sid himself is you know when Sid Vicious died, he was only twenty one. So mm. there's not that much age difference between him and Fergie, our main character, who's fifteen. However, Sid is kind of like a man out of time, and you know he's got attitudes and he's got experiences that really he struggles to sort of um, get in touch with in the, in the modern day, really. But there's also the fact that um, our Sid will probably turn out not to be who Fergie thinks he is and indeed who Sid himself thinks he is. That's kind of an ongoing plot line that's, uh, that, that's going to be sort of leaking out over the, uh, over the next few issues. That's a nice little tease. That gives us something to look forward to. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, now one thing. Speaking of speaking of Fergie, one thing that really mm. stood out to me in this first issue was the relationship between he and his mum. Now, especially things that she makes him do. So, as yeah. a writer, how are you hoping that readers would react to her? Well, I think um, we um, we seen the first issue and in subsequent issues that uh, Fergie's mum, Julie, she's got a fairly unorthodox approach to parenting really and you know we see in the first issue that she uh, she takes him around kind of reality tv shows and 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 makes up wild stories for tabloid magazines just to earn a living and and she does other things as well but she's she's had a fairly unorthodox upbringing herself and Part of the story is kind of the search on Fergie's part for his his dad, who he's never met, and who his mum doesn't talk about uh, very much, and that becomes 
a major plot point uh, as as the story goes on, and that's kind of where Fergie's story intersects with that of the Department for Extra Usual Affairs and Dorothy Culpepper and Asif Beg, who we also meet in the first issue. I was actually just getting ready to ask about them because I mean, uh, we that, that's almost get a, like we planned it. <laughs> there you go. We were kind of flowing right into it here. So I mean, it feels like that. It actually feels like the Department of Extra Usual Affairs in this first issue, anyway. It's like an awesome side story that you have going on, but you kind of know, like you said, the worlds are going to collide. So how much are we actually going to learn about the history of not only the department itself, but of Dorothy in future issues? Uh, Quite a lot, especially in the first arc. They get a fairly prominent show in issue two that will be out next month. And we, I I mean... Dorothy is uh, is is a real anachronism. She's uh, she appears to be maybe in her six, late sixties, but she's uh, dresses like she she would have done sort of forty fifty years ago in the, in the nineteen sixties, and we obviously we we see a little flashback to her on Carnaby Street in the sixties and in in her mod gear in the first issue, so we know she's kind of been around a long time doing what she's doing, which is basically being the British government's dirty little secret in a way. She deals with all the kind of supernatural stuff that um, that people just don't want to know about, but she's so good at what she does that she is just kind of left to her own devices. Um, but then in the first issue, we she gets basically a trainee, an intern, basically a, a young guy fresh out of spy school who's sort of thrown into the mix. And and the reasons for that become clear a bit later on. She She's not really interested in carrying a passenger on what she does, but she's not left with much choice. But yeah, Dorothy's got an interesting past. And um, I think uh, when we get to about issue five, we explore quite in, in depth um, what's going on with Dorothy and uh, some quite quite interesting revelations around her coming up as well. Talking to writer David Barnett, of course, of Punk's Not Dead, number one from Black Crown, which, of course, you can get now. Next issue is going to be available in March. Now, David, Fergie couldn't have found out that he had abilities at a better time considering that he was dealing with a bully. So if you have, if you could have had one ability as a kid to deal mm. with a bully, what would it have been? Oh, God, I think... Um, I- I, th- I think the uh, my superpower fantasy has always been something like just being able to stop time and just you know have everyone freeze around you and then um, you can just like uh, in in case of a fight you know just kind of like just go and push someone over and they don't even know it, know it's oh, happening. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> But 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 I, that appeals to me because you know I, I mean that even appeals to me as I get older because it's like you know if I could stop time I could like just like get so much more work done. Oh totally. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I, I, I probably have a couple of naps as well. So uh. <laughs> yeah, as someone who has a toddler in the house, if I could stop time to have a nap yeah. every now and then, absolutely, man. Yes, yeah, let's do yeah. that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, forget flying or climbing up the outside of a skyscraper just like yeah super naps is what people this is what happens when you get older right david you just want to nap absolutely yeah i'm I'm definitely there at this point too (laughs) yeah and they say punk's not dead eh? (laughs) yeah well exactly there you go it works right in so now i couldn't possibly i couldn't possibly go on david though without talking about the amazing artwork in this issue by martin simons which may be the best of any black crown book to date or maybe even anything that's on the shelf now as it is how do you feel like martin's art best enhances the story that you're both trying to tell here oh it's uh, it's absolutely amazing i mean when um, 
Shelley Bond and myself were talking, you know, kind of just about a year ago about uh, about this book when we didn't have an artist on board. And she said, I'm going to get uh, a few people to do some sort of character sketches and we'll take it from there. And the first one that came back in were Martins. And I just said, right, I've seen enough. He's absolutely nailed the characters that were in my head. So that was a great start. That was kind of an auspicious omen, really, that he just from my kind of fairly brief character descriptions and a couple of scenes I'd written up for uh, for the first issue, just absolutely drew out precisely what I was envisaging for these characters. So that was a great start. And uh, Martin is uh, such a great visual storyteller in his own right. Um, and, and I mean, comics, as we know, is a, a collaborative medium. It's not just a case of the writer telling the artist what to illustrate. Mm. It's... It, 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 it's an utterly collaborative show where I tell the story as best I, I see it and Martin will in, interpret what I do and, and just take it to the nth degree and um, and add these flourishes and storytelling touches that are absolutely fantastic. And, we you know, we, uh, we didn't know each other uh, before um, and we we kind of speak at least once a week, um, but on the phone and just sort of thrash things out. And I, I'll I'll kind of like give Martin a call and say, "How are you on crowd scenes?" And he'll say, "I hate crowd scenes." And I'll say, "Okay, we'll we'll do two in the next issue and stuff like that." So. <laughs> Along with a full page spread, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he, one of the first things he said to me was, um, yeah, I don't like crowd scenes and I don't like horses. So I'm, oh, I'm the horses desperate. thing every time. Every yeah. artist I talk to, it's always horses. So I, I'm desperate to work a big riot scene into uh, into a forthcoming issue with police horses and uh, and lots of crowds. But uh, Police horses, you know, minotaurs, all sorts of things around. Yeah, get, get their works in there, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you were talking about Fergie's dad a little bit earlier. I want to push mm. the envelope on that a little bit because I feel like we're barely scratching the surface of what's going on there. So without spoiling anything best you can, how much should readers trust the story that Fergie was actually told about what happened to his dad? Um, I absolutely trust nothing that Fergie thinks he knows about his father at all. Um, I mean, we see him in the, in the first issue and, he, and he's basically daydreaming about, he's making stories up in his head about who he who he thinks his dad could be he's desperate for some kind of exciting story there but he probably just suspects that he was the result of um, a liaison that didn't work out or just a one-off kind of thing so he's, he's really under no illusions as to what um what his background is but he's going to get a huge surprise and and some of that is tied into why he's kind of stuck to Sid uh, it's there's almost no accident there that um that he's uh, com- completely tied in with Sid and who his father is and how that works is going to sort of play into that somehow I have theories I but I won't people. share because I don't want I don't want to spoil anything for anybody but maybe maybe we'll talk about it off the air yeah anyway, yeah absolutely yeah 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 so I, I we can't let you go David without actually talking about music which is kind of the basis sure, yeah. for this issue now I've saw on Twitter that you said you have a terrible taste in music so I have to ask <laughs> did you have a particular soundtrack in mind when you were writing this first issue or did you actually have anything playing in the background? Um, I, I listen to music constantly, and um, I'm, I'm constantly sort of like just 
digging up old stuff that I've always been into and trying new stuff just through kind of like uh, Spotify sort of um, playlists and, and Apple iTunes playlists and stuff like that to find out new stuff. And I've got a really wide range in testing music. I mean, Punk's Not Dead is is obviously kind of entrenched in something that's gone before and it's in and it's although it's set in a very contemporary era it's um it's harking back to something else and that's kind of deliberate really because part of the story is showing how things have moved on and and how we, we've all got to move on but it's um you know it's i i've i i was actually on some local a local radio show early today and i had to sort of choose eight tracks to to play and uh that were kind of like important to me throughout my life and, and I just had kind of all sorts in there from Simon and Garfunkel to uh Underworld to REM to wow. Oasis and stuff like that so lots of um lots of late 80s kind of indie alternative stuff like the Smiths things like that I was I was big on my jukebox um a lot of um 90s indie stuff a lot of Britpop a lot of uh what we used to call techno, but what the kids mm-hmm. called uh, call EDM these days. So yep. I, I was I was like very big into the rave scene in sort of the nineties, and um, especially kind of progressive techno like Orbital things like that. Um, recently, I've been listening to uh, a lot of uh, Wolf Alice, which is an absolutely fantastic nice. British band. Courtney Barnett, who shares a surname with me, but is no relation, who's an Australian singer songwriter. And um, so I'm pretty much just up for anything all the time, really. But uh, but obviously, as you go through life, you kind of pick up soundtracks that are important to you at that point in your particular life. So there's always going to be points where kind of REM were important to me and the Smiths and bands like Underworld and the Chemical Brothers and stuff like that have all got their own sort of place. And you kind of hook yourself back to those moments in life and they thought those bands and artists provide the soundtrack. Now, millennials, for those who don't know, a jukebox was actually <laughs> something you had to put a quarter in. It's like a giant iPod that would play music that you wanted to hear if it was on there. So I, I can only imagine that there were some of our listeners that said, what's a jukebox? And then I, I slapped my palm on my forehead going, oh, come on. Yeah, no, ask, ask your mom. Google it. <laughs> no, they go, Google it. You know, it'll come up. Ask Siri or something. I'm sure that uh, she'd be yeah. very helpful. <laughs> oh, you're making me feel old now. <laughs> oh, I'm right there with you, man. So, I mean, hey, we're, we're on the same path there. But, I mean, it doesn't matter what age you are. You have to go get Punk's Not Dead, number one, from Black Crown. And, of course, issue two is going to be available next month. You can avoid having to f- remember whether or not to pick mm. it up by just adding it to your pull box at your local shop or your digital retailer. So much fun talking to writer David Barnett. Thank, thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, thank you. That was great. Man, it was so much fun talking to David Barnett about Punk's Not Dead. And it was just so good to talk about a Black Crown comic for the first time on the show, or at least in an interview anyway, because I feel like, you know, since the line has launched, it's just been such a blast, and you, you just tell everyone is having a great time, and then you bring in Punk's Not Dead and the fantastic art by Martin Simons, and, and you just, this took, this really, really did take Black Crown up another notch, and like I was telling David, it's not like other Black Crown books haven't been good, but for some reason, this one just felt top-notch, top-of-the-line, and it wasn't even the first book out. I mean, Kid Lobotomy was great, too. But I even think this takes it up another notch. So what Black Crown's doing early on is really, really groundbreaking stuff here. And Shelley Bond and the crew deserve a lot of credit for getting the right creative teams on the right books to really, really get off to a fast start. 
That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Black Crown and IDW for having me chat with David Barnett this week. Really, really appreciate that. And hey, if you want to find out more about the show, all you got to do, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy. Also at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow us on YouTube too, by the way, just search down and nerdy podcast on YouTube. Always some different videos up there and trailers and stuff that we post up there as well from various movies and shows that you might be looking to check out. You can find out all this information though, really easy on our website, down and nerdy podcast.com. And don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds and rock on.